SQL Down Under is a podcast for professionals working in the SQL Server community. SQL Server is a trademark of Microsoft Corporation. Opinions expressed during the podcast are individual opinions and may not reflect the opinions of SQL Down Under or of Microsoft Corporation. Introducing show number 32 with guest Michael Reese. guest today is Michael Reese. Michael is a Principal Program Manager for SQL Server's Query Technologies, SQL and XQuery, and Beyond Relational Data. He's Program Manager for the XML features in SQL Server 2000 to 2008, such as 4XML, the XML data type, and XQuery, and for spatial indexing in SQL Server 2008. He also represents Microsoft Corp in the W3C XML Query Working Group and the ANSI SQL Standardization Effort. He joined Microsoft in 1998 after performing research in the areas of object-oriented and semi-structured databases, multi-level transaction management, and distributed heterogeneous information integration at Stanford University as a postdoc and at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich, where he earned his PhD. Michael is a senior member of the ACM and a member of IEEE and has given many presentations and contributed to several books on XQuery and XML and databases. And he blogs at sqlblog.com. So welcome, Michael. Uh, welcome, Greg. Thank you for having me. <laughs> That's great. So as we do with everyone, I'll get you to describe first up just how did you ever come to be involved uh, with SQL Server and at Microsoft? Well, that's an interesting story. Um, so as you already um, recapped, I did research and my PhD in the area of database systems and uh, database research. And um, I decided when I was doing my postdoc that I didn't want to go into academia, that my kind of uh, passion was built in the area of building systems. And uh, academics, um, when you want to build systems, it's pretty hard to get recognized for that because they want you to write papers. Yes, indeed. And so I started looking around in the Bay Area for um, some kind of interesting research and development position in the area of uh, information management and database systems, etc. And I know... At the time, I knew that there was this evil empire up north that uh, was potentially also hiring, but um, I wasn't really that much interested in moving up there and wanted to stay in the Bay Area. Yeah. Um, but um, a person from um, Microsoft at the time came to visit us at Stanford, and um, I was taking him out uh, in the evening to the guest club, and we had dinner and talked and so on, and he said, oh, um, he's having this interesting project of uh, bringing XML to the masses, and uh, since I have a background in semi-structured data management, and he wants to see how one can use utilize databases to process XML documents, mm. um, he would be interested in basically getting me up to interview in his team and um, help him basically jumpstart um, something that has to do with XML databases, wasn't quite clear yet what it was, whether it was a separate XML database or some integration into an existing product, um, I should just come up. But that was kind of, okay, yeah, uh, weekend uh, with the family up in Seattle and meeting some interesting people at Microsoft, talking with them, they pay, why not? So I went up and um, met with the guys and... Um, we had interesting discussions during the interview cycle, and uh, I got an offer, and in the end, um, I decided that I was intrigued enough that I would uh, relocate and join Microsoft uh, instead of staying in the Bay Area. Mm. So um, then the first couple of months, we basically did our due diligence and figuring out what we actually wanted to do, and then about nine years ago... Um, we decided that we would join the SQL Server team and uh, add the XML support to SQL Server team, which ended then up being the XML support in SQL Server 2000, and uh, it went from there. Outstanding. And if you want to know how I ever got into databases, that's yet another story. So. <laughs> Indeed. Well, look, in terms of XML, 
Uh, I suppose that's the, the main topic uh, for today, first up. I suppose one of the questions that DBAs tend to ask uh, who haven't necessarily have a uh, development background, the the issue is why, why do they want to have XML in the database in the first place and what is the real benefit you, you see uh, that bring? Okay, so there are a couple of aspects that I would like to tackle that on. I mean, there are a couple of scenarios where XML is being used uh, in conjunction with database and data processing um, where XML basically either peripherally or inside the database have um, basically meets the database per se. So the first scenario is where you have your relational data inside your database and you want to integrate that into some loosely coupled information exchange where the transport format of the data being sent out of the database or being received into the database is uh, defined using XML. So you basically send XML documents back and forth and the data that you want to process is still relational in nature. So yeah. in that case, you would use the XML functionalities that we provide with SQL Server to publish and what we call shred or decompose the XML back into relational data. So it's an interchange format at that point. Yeah. Now, in that context, DBAs might uh, encounter XML basically mainly when they write store procedures that do the shredding or do the publishing. Now, another scenario for XML is, especially in the database context, is that XML gets used um, to circumvent the rather strict relational uh, schemas that you have. Um, so mm -hmm. you want to be able to uh, have some kind of outlet for evolving your schema more quickly and less costly than what you would have to do by changing your table schema all the time. And um, so basically you want to be able to deal with property bags where you're not even sure a priori what type of properties you have to manage. Yeah. In fact, uh, that, that's one I, I might get you to, uh, we should quickly explain, because maybe the whole concept of a property bag isn't, isn't immediately obvious uh, to some of the listeners. And this would be more things like, for example, if I'm writing an application and there are a whole set of, uh, settings or things like that for an application that I want to store, then the whole issue is that really perhaps has no meaning for the database whatsoever, uh, all of the individual things that are part of that, and I certainly don't want to have to build a schema that reflects all that and change that every time I change the application because I'm not processing it inside the database. I just want to store and retrieve that those settings. That's one example. Another example would be that you build a generic product catalog application where you maintain a certain set of uh, commonly known properties across all your catalogs, like, I don't know, Amazon.com or something like that. Yeah. But then you have individual properties for each one of the items that you have inside your catalog. Now, at the beginning, you can think, well, I have a table for each one of these items. I have a table for my books. I have a table for my cameras. I have a table for my trousers, and I have the corresponding properties for each one of those. But if you look at it, um, over time, you will sell more and more new items that have properties that you didn't anticipate a priori. So by having the XML, it gives you the ability to basically have this property bag which contains the name of the property and the value of the property in XML format without actually having to evolve your relational database schema um, once the application has been deployed. You might one, still have I to... I suppose one question that comes up is that in typical relational databases, what I can imagine a number of people saying is they would say, well, hang on, I used to do that by simply having like the one table to rule them all <laughs> that was the... Uh, you know, that basically had a set of uh, descriptions or keys and had a set of values. So I suppose the question yes, is, that's right, we add additional flexibility compared to that model. Um, basically, what you add to it is you add uh, more um, clustered processing of that information. Um, you don't have to... Um, break, um, basically decluster the name value pairs out into a name value pair table, you can keep the properties with the rest of the information inside your, inside your um, at least logical row. Physically, it might still be stored out of row. Yeah. And it um, 
gives you the ability to move these properties around uh, in a get-put fashion as a single unit. You don't have to, like, uh, compose them and decompose them all the time. And the pro- programming model, in my opinion, is also closer in the sense that you don't have to suddenly uh, do value-based lookups. Um, you can actually do path-based lookups, which uh, potentially might be more efficient. Yeah, in- indeed. And so, as you're saying, that's right, we might have a whole bunch of rows that relate to one row in some parent table, and this would allow us to keep that sort of data together. I think the other the other situation where I've found that it's been particularly useful is where the property that I'm storing uh, isn't a simple flat set of properties. And so perhaps it's a some nested structure and maybe properties contain properties and so on. And I may or may not want to process that inside the database directly, but I sure want to have some way of storing that. Um, but even if I do want to process it, I, I had a, an example a while ago where I was doing some things for an electricity generation company, and they wanted to store details of relays. And the reason they'd called us in is that the people who were designing the solution had come up with a solution that had 3,000 tables where they'd come up with a different table for every type of relay. And the customer suddenly went, hang on, this this doesn't look right. And what was sort of interesting is that you have, for representing a, a relay, there were a whole bunch of standard relational properties that were there but then there was a whole bunch of other stuff that was completely different for different types of relays and different levels of nesting and different levels of things that needed to be stored, yet ideally you really wanted to still be able to query that. Yes, exactly. So in SQL Server 2005, um, certainly, and to some extent in 2008, the XML data type would be a perfect way of both storing the information for easy get-put operation as well as still have it available for um, query access to the individual properties. And just as an aside, in SQL Server 2008, we also added uh, new relational capabilities to support some of these scenarios better using sparse columns. And, yes, um, I was uh, about I, I, to ask that question as to where that overlaps with the new support for sparse columns, because that's another approach I've seen people take, is just create gigantic tables with tons and tons and tons of columns. Yeah all of which are nullable and very few of which have data. Yes. Um, so basically in SQL Server 2005, this was a very inefficient way of managing the data in SQL Server because of the way that we represented row and column information. We were limited by 1,024 columns. In SQL Server 2008, we are adding support for so-called sparse columns where if you not uh, identify a certain column as sparse, the storage will not actually store any um data for null values, so therefore um, if you have lots of null values, this will become a very um, dense storage format, and we give you the ability to have uh, up to 30,000 columns uh, in a table uh, out of which um, 29,000 can be sparse, Um, and at most 1,000 can be non-sparse. I think the other beauty, what I've seen uh, with sparse columns is also the ability to retrieve the sparse columns efficiently as well. Yes, and that's where XML comes into play. So we have the notion of a column set for all the sparse columns, which gives you an XML representation for doing easy set put operation using an XML representation of the sparse data. Um, Now, going back to the scenarios, there's a third scenario, which is kind of the document management scenario, where XML is being used as a document format. Think Office documents like... uh, the latest Office XML formats that you might have seen. Uh, think um, XHTML documents. Think um, some other specific um, vertical domain um, vocabulary that is being expressed in XML, be that um, XBRL or some other format. And you want to basically store that in the database, but you don't want to necessarily only store it as a blob because you want to have query access to the data inside of it. You want to be able to run XPath queries against it to, for example, find all the documents that have a certain author or they have a certain um, other information. Sometimes you might promote that information out in the relational context when you load the data, but sometimes you might not a priori know what you query over, like in an accident report of an insurance company. So you basically keep the XML there and then use XQuery and full text search to 
go against the XML to find that information. Actually, that so that's kind blends, of the third. yeah, that blends together a number of topics actually in there. So, well, one is the idea that we could store uh, a good case for storing things in XML is where the thing is XML in the first place anyway, and. I noted a couple, I think it was a year or two back, you had a session, uh, I think it was at TechEd, where you had examples of taking, uh, using sort of calculated persisted columns to yep. uh, take metadata out of a document or something and store it for ease of indexing and so on. So rather than having a process that says, when I put the XML document in, I need to grab that metadata out and stick it in different columns, you could simply build a calculated persisted column that extracted automatically when you updated the XML, could extract the metadata, and then you could index that. Yes. The main drawback of that is, is that you then will basically run your query against the relational promoted data. You will not be using XQuery to run it, which is not a drawback, but it's just that if you run an XQuery against it, unfortunately our optimizer doesn't know that it could use the persistent column. Yeah. And um, the other thing you did is you then also had full text indexing enabled over that as well. Correct, yes. Um, that gives you the ability to do um, partial full text search over partial parts of the document. Um, now, so this is from the scenario point of view. Now, if you're on a DBA, there is another reason why you might be interested in XML, though. And that is that SQL Server itself actually exposes lots of useful information nowadays using an XML format. Just think about uh, eventing information. Think about the XML representation of a show plan. So you could run, you could basically capture your plans in XML format and then run some interesting X queries over it to find out what's happening with your plans. Like find all the plans that have uh, that spend too much time in an acid loop chunk, for example. Yeah, in fact, I find that's another very interesting one. Is that I hear DBAs who say. In fact, the one that scares me is I often come across trainers who work with uh, teaching SQL classes, and they say, look, I talk to the class and ask if anybody's interested in XML, and nobody is, so I don't even talk about it, or, or I quickly minimize the amount of time I'm talking. And I say, look, the, the thing is that if you ask people, uh, often they have no idea why they would be interested. I see the role of the trainer as sort of telling people why they might be interested, and Immediately, one of the things I ask them about is, aren't you interested in DDL triggers or being able to programmatically query plans or things like that? And they say, oh, can you do that? So, And that's right. And all of that sort of information is sent to you as XML. Correct, yes. And actually, Bob Borschmer has uh, some interesting lectures given uh, where he shows some interesting cool reports and queries that people could run to analyze their system behavior, etc., using the XML information that SQL Server provides them with and using um, XQuery and the XML data type inside SQL Server to actually analyze the data. Yeah. In fact, one of the, one of the things, that, um, a note coming up in 2008 is the extended events provider. Um, is that something I can ask you about? Um, I'm not that familiar with uh, the... Ah, that's okay. I will... I will uh, pursue that another day with the appropriate person because <laughs> uh, uh, it's another area I've noticed uh, Bob's been about the only one I've seen even blogging any details about it, and uh, I'm sort of intrigued to follow it up. But again, uh, all of that stuff comes as XML, so I, I, I just see it as such a, a core competency uh, becoming part of the database world. Yep. One of the, the questions that comes up, though, I suppose there, there are a lot of relational purists who uh, I suppose don't don't necessarily see it has uh, a role in being stored directly like that. But another one that I thought was interesting the other day, I noticed there was a, a paper uh, called The End of an Architectural Era. I don't know if you saw that one, uh, but Michael Stonebaker and uh, Pat Helland, actually, from Microsoft, and they were really discussing the whole one-size-fits-all approach with relational databases. And the discussion is, with all the different types of data that we're starting to put in the database, are we getting to the point where specialised engines would actually be a better alternative? Um, I think that's a very interesting um, philosophical debate. Um, <laughs> to be honest, I... 
don't have the answer to that question yet. Yeah. Whether it's better to have everything in one database system or have a specialized database system. I think um, the answer heavily depends upon how you actually want to combine and, um, and mash up the information. Yeah. Um, and basically what type of distributed query processing and information integration capabilities you're actually going to have. If <laughs> you have information that you want to combine, and basically, because most of your business problems are not purely relational, they're not purely XML, they're not purely um, data warehousing type, column store type stuff, yeah. um, etc. They are a mixture of all of these. And so if you need to solve a business problem, you will have to basically combine these individual uh, types of data in some form. Now, whether that integration then is being done by having some kind of information integration components that communicates with these individual components. And then you obviously have problems of impedance mismatches, um, transaction consistencies, yeah. etc. Or whether you move that into a database system that happens to be very good at processing all kinds of information, not mm. just relational, so basically kind of the common data platform, storage platform, etc., I think that that will be seen. It's interesting to note that we used to have lots of specialized stores since the relational systems uh, became popular, like object-oriented database systems, uh, native XML database systems, and um, and even um, some like um, main memory database systems. And many of those database systems have found a niche. They are still out there. They're being used, but um, they are basically used for a very small, specific kind of application scenarios. And in most cases, the move of the relational database vendors to add functionality covering the space to, to give more semantic modeling or to give better XML document support, etc., kind of um, is sufficient for most of the um, standard applications that you, that you see. So I think it's um, I think it's not an either or. I think it probably will be a both. And the question on this: How big is the uh, actual benefit to the user of keeping it separate versus uh, keeping everything in in one data management? If we can maybe uh, perhaps go through and just summarize in the different versions of SQL Server uh, what's been available in the different versions to process XML. Okay, yeah, so in SQL Server 2000, we basically added uh, mainly functionality that allows you to take relational data, publish it into XML formats so that you can take part in this kind of information exchange environment, and then take relational data that comes in in XML form and shred it back into, rela into relational form. On the database, we in, on the server side, we gave you 4XML for doing that and OpenXML for shredding. And then there was a SQL XML mixer component that uh, used annotated schemas and SQL XML bulk loads to give you similar capabilities through OLEDB and then through web releases, etc. later also through ADO.net. Um, uh, with yeah. 4XML, I suppose we should quickly mention, so the basic formats for that, we had auto, raw, and explicit, and yeah. maybe just a quick description of what they were. So the raw mode... So you say basically select star from table for XML raw. Gives you a very simple one element per row, one attribute per column value uh, XMLification of your relational uh, result set. The auto mode was trying to be clever to um, kind of divine parent-child relationship based on lineage of the information from what table they came from, etc. So if you did a join, left outer join between customers and orders, um, and said for XML auto, we kind of um, we inferred that the customer contained orders based on some lineage information and the data that uh, is being returned back in the row set. The explicit mode, but it had, that had certain limitations in terms of what shapes you could produce with. So the explicit mode was a rather complex uh, format based on the universal table approach that gives you the ability to define arbitrary XML shapes. You had to author your query in a way that you returned a specific row set format, and then if you said, so if you 
did that and at the end said for XML explicit, it would take that row set format and create XML out of it. Um, the feedback I got from a lot of people was the explicit option was pretty difficult to get their head around. We had uh, the nickname for that was the query from hell. Um, <laughs> we had, however, um, lots of people putting it into production. We had like people at Microsoft.com that had four to five thousand lines of uh, explicit mode queries, and uh, it worked uh, flawlessly for them. However, maintenance of that code was uh, rather painful. Yeah. And so, in SQL Server 2005, we added um, native XML data type support, which meant that you actually could store XML documents uh, without having to go through a relational shredding process in the database. We stored it in some efficient internal format and gave you X query, a subset of XQuery to query into the data. Um, there is an XML indexing mechanism that allows you to improve the performance of these XQueries. There is an XML schema mechanism that allows you to constrain the XML stored inside a table to conform to a certain schema and to associate XML schema type information with it, which then can be used in XQuery for optimization and for semantic purposes. For example, you get an integer value, so you do an order by in your XQuery expression. Your order is actually number-based and not string-based. Yeah, I suppose that's that's a, an initial, couple of initial concepts there. One is uh, that people don't seem to get immediately is that when you we store XML using the XML type, it's not a literal storage. Uh, I think people get surprised sometimes that when they retrieve the XML back out, it's in kind of a canonical form. It's not exactly literally stored like they put it in there. That's Correct, because what we basically, there is um, the XQuery specification defines something that is co uh, called the XQuery XPath data model. And what we basically do is our XML data type is basically an implementation of such a data model. And um, that means that certain textual uh, representations and encodings actually are not being preserved. However, it's preserving what um, some people in the industry call infoset fidelity, meaning it, it provides the information that uh, is considered to be important. It does not preserve the textual fidelity. Yeah. Now, another, uh, I suppose, yeah, what we did mention in um, 2000 as well is there was 4XML and so on for getting the data out, but we also had OpenXML uh, for was one way of processing the XML that came in? Yes. So let me maybe first address what we did in 4XML in SQL Server 2005 before mm -hmm. I talk about the shredding aspect. So because we now have the XML data type and uh, basically ca can now start composing 4XML queries um, using subqueries, we decided that the there it, it was now time to basically get a functionality into 4XML that made it much simpler to author arbitrary XML shapes. And so we devised what we call the path mode, which is a much simpler way of writing um, the queries than the explicit mode is. Yeah. Um, the explicit mode is still there uh, for two reasons. Obviously, because people have still written code, so we can't just remove it. Secondly, yeah. <laughs> there are a couple of cases where the explicit mode, even though it's harder to maintain, might still perform better. There are yeah. other cases where the path mode will perform better. It actually depends yeah. on a little bit on the data and the shapes that you want to generate. I must so admit, I've, I've, I've normally described the 2005 changes to that uh, to people that it almost looks like all the things that forced you to have to use explicit mode before, most of those things you can now do in a simpler way. Of course, yes, and the simpler way is the path mode, most likely. Yeah. I mean, we had, um, again, uh, as an example, the people at Microsoft.com that had these four or 5,000 lines of explicit mode queries actually rewrote their queries using the path mode and uh, got, got a reduction in size of more than an order of magnitude. So they ended up with maybe three to 400 lines of path mode queries, yeah. which were much easier to maintain, easier to understand, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, now, on the shredding side, in SQL Server 2000, um, we had the OpenXML. Now, OpenXML is internally using an MSXML um, processor. 
uh, mm-hmm. which is one of the mid-tier processors, which is not uh, 100% fully integrated with the SQL Server memory manager, etc. So it had certain scaling issues. Yeah. Um, we addressed some of the scaling issues uh, by moving, um, starting with SP4, I think, of uh, SQL Server 2000 and um, with SQL Server 2005. Um, however, um, we kind of, unless the performance uh, is still needed, we kind of recommend that you are using now the notes method and the XQuery capabilities on the XML data type to do the shredding instead. Yeah. So what we now had before, some- we had XPS, um, SPXML prepared document where you'd create basically, I suppose, an in-memory yeah. picture of the, the tree. Yeah, this is basically the parser that takes the textual XML and creates the internal representation that the XPath yeah. engine has. And then we use yeah. OpenXML to iterate over that or to work over it. And um, One of the big differences I noted in 2005 is that uh, that's now batch scoped. Um, the prepared document. That was. Because um, I noticed I, one, I of, one of the things it, it, were, so, it, it was batch scoped for a while. It should be session scoped still. Yeah, I had a, I had a feeling SPXML prepared document was now and uh, w- the problem they had is a lot of people weren't calling remove document, and yeah, and it was chewing up memory. And the more you yeah. processed, the worse it got. So. Yes, and we actually uh, added a dynamic management function in SQL Server 2005 SP1 mm-hmm. um, that gives um, DBAs the ability to check for which threads are still holding um, memory open so that you can kind of do a troubleshooting of uh, misbehaving processes, Yeah, um, which is something that I think can be very useful. Now... Again, obviously, we recommend that you call remove document because that releases the memory before, before yeah. you uh, terminate the session. But this is all really necessary because you're calling out to MSXML, which yes. is outside the normal memory management of SQL Server itself. Yes, and that's not going to be necessary with the XML data type, obviously, because that's completely integrated into the engine. But yeah. you should not use OpenXML on an XML data type because... OpenXML still requires MSXML, so we would copy the XML data type out again into that format, so it's not a good idea to do that. Actually, that's a really good hint because uh, I've seen a lot of people who had procedures that previously took NVARCHAR data types and, and used OpenX, um, uh, XML prepare document and OpenXML, and they've simply changed the proc because it now can take an XML parameter and still pass it to SPXML prepare yeah. document. So what you're suggesting is that's a really bad idea because that's going to... It's not a performant idea because what happens is that the XML data type will parse the string into its internal format. Then when you pass it to SPXML prepare document, you have to reserialize it back into textual format and then reparse it again. The only yeah. reason why you might want to do that is if you have encoding issues and you don't have time to go and change the um, open XML um, processing yet, um, but you might have um, UTF-8 data that SPXML prepare document uh, does not get to process correctly because of NVAR char losing fidelity. That yeah. using the XML data type might be an easy workaround, but otherwise yeah, I would not good. recommend it. Well, listen, in term, I suppose performance is one of the things we need to talk about just in general. And so one of the questions people raise all the time is they say, well, I've got all these query methods now. So we're saying the next thing is that there's a whole bunch of X query methods that have been added to the data types. Um, Performance of those compared to relational queries? Um, Well, the answer there is that relational will be faster uh, in most cases. Uh, simply because of the because the relational model is somewhat simpler, therefore um, the actual performance is uh, simpler too. Um, however, you can get pretty good performance if you um, design your queries and your data in a way that um, and, and define your XML indices on them, such that the indices actually have high selectivity and your queries actually can perform well on it. And um, just to plug it a little bit, I have uh, given the presentation at um, the two t- recent tech uh, in 
the U.S. and in Europe last year, which uh, gives some um, kind of examples of how you actually can, by improving the way that you write your X queries, can make better use of indices and get better performance back out. And, actually, um, we should mention the indexes too, because there are different types of indexes. Correct, yes. Yeah. So basically we have um, a first index, which we call the primary XML index, which indexes the whole XML document per se. Now, the reason why we do that is is that we actually want to exploit our relational query processor and optimizer for answering queries, and the XML is stored in an internal blob representation inside the column. So in order to make it accessible for the query processor, we now take that XML, shred it into what we call a node table, because every XML node is basically represented as a, as a row, and uh, then operate relationally on it. So the, basically the guidance there is that if you have lots of queries and not too many updates, you probably want to use a, a primary XML index uh, to avoid the runtime generation of that node table every time you run a query. Yeah. Now, there's a drawback, however, which is that uh, it uh, can be fairly large. Um, we have seen like um, size impro- uh, increases that the primary XML index takes between 1.5 to up to six times as much space as the original data stored. Yeah, the actual XML data, yeah. I think that's one of the ones that surprises people a lot is that, that's right, the XML is a certain size, but the primary index on that can be very much larger than the, the data itself. And unfortunately, we didn't get to address much on that space in the um, SQL Server 2008 timeframe, but we are looking at um, some improvements uh, in, in an upcoming release where we can um, minimize that space overhead. Yeah. And then uh, we have then, secondary indexes. Yeah, and now this primary XML index is basically nothing else than an internal table because it has lots of columns. And so we decided that we provided the ability with uh, some secondary indexes, which are um, the path index, the properties index, and the value index. And the name of the, in- of the secondary indices basically kind of um, imply a little bit what they are used for. So the path index is basically speeding up queries that have high selectivity on path. So if I have a query where I say slash A slash B, and I have lots of nodes inside my document, but only a few slash A slash Bs, then the, that index will help us speed up queries of that kind. Um, we also have the um, property index, which is good if you already know from a relational predicate what your row is, then it allows you to very quickly look up the property name and its value. So that's kind of for the property back scenario, an index that is very useful. Yeah. And the last one, the value index, less often used is if you do a comparison in X query, like um, the value of an attribute equals a certain value, if that has high selectivity um, based on the statistics that the relational engine is gathering on that uh, on that uh, value column, then it might be better to have a value index there too. Yeah. Listen, that's probably a good point to take a break. And what we might do when we come back then, we'll talk uh, also maybe about what XQuery methods are available, um, and then we'll talk about what's coming in 2008. Sure. Excellent. I'll talk to you soon. As well as community resources such as this podcast, SQL Down Under offer mentoring services and both private and public training options. If you need to get your project back on track, or if you need to get it off to a good start, why not give us a call? We have also recently introduced a series of online courses available in both Asia-Pacific and US-UK time zones. In particular, the first course that's offered in this series is Query Performance Tuning. You'll find details at www.sqldownunder.com. Welcome back from the break. Uh, so before we continue on, Michael, the thing I always get everybody to do is say, is there a life outside SQL Server? Um, yes, there is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, even though one is sometimes surprised. Uh, <laughs> so I have a family at home, so um, that obviously takes quite a bit of time. Yeah. Uh, the whole family and I, we love to travel, so uh, when we have vacation, we normally 
pack our bags and travel somewhere, either drive through the U.S. and Canada camping and hiking or go to some nice location where I can uh, follow one of my favorite hobbies, which is scuba diving and photography. Another uh, scuba diver. There you go. It's uh, it's obviously a popular thing. What had me intrigued is uh, I'm just intrigued that around the Seattle area is the is the water visibility reasonably good. I would have thought the the weather was a bit colder and so on than some of the other areas. I, I didn't know. Well, the water is pretty cold, so you have to be either um, a masochist or use a dry suit to go diving here. Yeah. And um, during the winter time. Visibility is actually pretty good. Uh, once it gets a little bit warmer, you get uh, algae bloom, and at that mm-hmm. point, visibility gets a little bit worse. And there's lots of interesting critters in the area here. It's uh, it's very temperate um, stuff, but um, if you're lucky, it never happened to me, obviously. But if you're lucky, yeah. there are some interesting shark species and orcas <laughs> and so on that might uh, interact with you. And we have the giant Pacific octopus here which I have seen, and wolf eels, which are kind of interesting. Yeah. Yes, I must admit, if you get to go scuba diving in Australia, we, we have lots of nice sharks for you to have a look at. <laughs> um, yes, um, although when I was there um, in Cairns, uh, there was no shark visible when I was there. Uh, that's lucky. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, f- further south, we get off uh, like uh, where I used to be in Brisbane, off uh, islands like Morton Island and Fraser Island and some of those, it's... Uh, <laughs> there are a lot <laughs> and uh, in fact one of the things that uh, used to intrigue me I, I used to play in bands many years ago and we would play at the Stradbroke Island Hotel and at Point Lookout on a Saturday night but Sunday morning we'd get up early in the morning stand up on the top of the uh, the point there and you could sort of look down over the ocean in a, a big sweeping area and you just see schools and schools of sharks out, out there feeding and what had me intrigued is the number of people I saw swimming, oh, a hundred meters away. Yeah. <laughs> and, and obviously where they were swimming, there's no way they could see what I could see from up on the point, uh, or they would not have been swimming there. Well, but the interesting part is, uh, there was probably never a shark attack. Ah, oh, no, sadly we do. <laughs> so. uh, well, down, I know that down south, towards, uh, <laughs> Sydney, where the great, and Melbourne and so on, where the great whites are, you obviously have attacks. Yeah, uh, no, we, we have those sure as well. And uh, actually, the ones that tend to take people locally are bronze whalers. Uh, in fact, in the canals, okay, yeah. uh, the actual canals down around the Gold Coast and those sort of areas, uh, yeah. there are s- substantial uh, numbers of times there have been issues. Um, yeah, so, in, yeah these, these are, I think, called uh, bull sharks around here. Yeah, and I think they can be very vicious. Yes. Yeah, they, they certainly can. In fact, I had uh, sadly I had a, a client uh, whose father was taken um, oh, about three or four years ago. Uh, he lived in the Gold Coast, and every morning he used to swim out in the canal to one of the islands and back. And uh, yeah, just didn't come back one morning. So uh, oh, that's, uh, that's yeah, bad, yeah, not good. And uh, in fact, the, the the, uh, one of the, the cutest pieces of trivia in Australia is uh, they always talk about where was the first recorded shark attack. And ironically, it was at Ipswich, which is uh, probably uh, 50 or 60 kilometres upriver from Brisbane, uh, not even on the coast. And uh, it uh-huh. was some unlikely soul who had decided a very, very long time ago, but he had decided to dig a swimming pool into his the back of his property from the river and while he was doing that he was taken by a shark so oh okay <laughs> not a good combination but nope. uh, i suppose the other thing is around uh, where you're living in seattle you're talking about uh, going camping and things and you've just got some spectacular areas for doing that yeah yeah, it's, yeah i think course, the mountain yeah. areas the uh, have you got any particular favorites um, for hiking, well, the, the the whole rocky area and the whole Cascade area is, is very mm. nice. Um, and then also the Olympic Peninsula has some nice, uh, very remote areas. Um, last summer we were up in uh, the um, Canadian parks, uh, Jasper Banff and Waterton. Yeah. Glacier National, that's uh, very beautiful around there. Um, mm. Around the Seattle area, closer by is obviously Mount Rainier. That whole area is very yeah, nice. That's uh, the Cascades yeah. uh, themselves, there are lots of nice hikes. Uh, 
um, with um, that aren't even good for the kids to do. Yeah, yeah, that's great. But I suppose back on XML, um, the other thing that we have in 2005 is a whole lot of xQuery methods, and maybe if you could just briefly describe each of those. Yeah, so in SQL Server 2005, um, we basically implement XML support using an XML data type. We don't give you a top-level XML data model in addition to the relational model. And so we have to have a way of associating the queries with the XML on which it's running. So in SQL Server 2005, and uh, hasn't changed in 2008, what we do is we expose... Um, three or four mechanisms of querying the data and then have one mechanism of uh, even going into sub-document level updates to it. So let's look at the queries. Now, what you want to do is, obviously, you want to have the ability to take an XML document, run an XQuery over it, and return a new XML document that uh, is some kind of uh, derivation of the original XML document. So that's done using the query method. So the query method takes an XML data type or is applied to an XML data type, has an XQuery expression in it, and then returns another XML data type that contains the result. Now, sometimes you want to just check whether something is present inside your um, XML data type. For example, property bag scenario, you want to find all the custom, uh, all the um, items that you have inside your catalog that have a certain property value set to a certain value. Yeah. Now, and in order to be able to do that, we basically give you a mechanism of uh, checking for existence. So that's the exist method uh, without yeah. an S. And uh, that gives you um, normally, especially with indices present, high performance in terms of checking for uh, existing of certain conditions inside your XML document, both on the structural side, whether a certain path exists, or also whether a certain path with a certain value exists. Yeah. Then um, the last thing is sometimes, especially when you shred data out of your XML, but also when you want to combine XML data and relational data, you often want to get your XML data into the relational type and value system. So you want to cast a node or an XML value into a relational value, and that's what the value method is for. So there you not only specify the path expression, that identifies the value that you want to cast, but you also specify the target relational type that you want to have exposed uh, as you as the type that you want to have it exposed in the relational yeah. context. I suppose that's one of the things is that in general in XML things tend to be strings uh, wherever you look at them, and so what we're really saying is that we want to drill in, find the sale quantity, and we want to return it as some type some specific type. Yeah. Yeah. So the query method, we said, basically takes takes XML and returns more XML. So it, we tend to use that for subsets or things like maybe retrieve all the uh, invoice lines out of an invoice or something like that. Um, yeah. You're mentioning exists we use to go and see if a particular node exists, but value we use to extract a specific value from a node. So then we have the nodes method. Yeah, so the nodes method is basically the ability um, to shred an XML document into um, partitions, basically. So the scenario there is twofold. Once is you have an XML document that you use to transport uh, multiple rows of information, uh, like a customer containing lots of orders, and you want to get a row per order out when you promote properties out. So you need to have a way of mapping um, a single XML document containing multiple rows into one row per node. Um, another reason why you might want to do that is if you want to join relational data with XML data, like uh, you want to add some information to your customers and you have multiple customers inside an XML document for some reason, um, then in order to be able to join, you need to be able to have one row that you can join with one relational row. So you use the notes table to basically, again, map multiple nodes inside the XML document into individual rows. Yeah. And by doing that, you basically uh, partition the XML documents because we actually don't copy. We just put pointers back into the notes method. does not do copies like the query method does. It just 
put pointers back into the original XML document. Yeah. So the notes method you normally use uh, in the from class, uh, combining it with the original XML column of your table or your variable uh, using uh, cross-apply. Yeah. Which is a new SQL Server 2005 mechanism of applying a table valid function to a column to create a new table. Yeah, I find cross uh, this is often when I get into discussion of cross apply because uh, I find a lot of people haven't really got their head around that either. So the idea of cross apply is typically where I have I want to for every row in a table I want to call a table valued function. And so a common thing might be for every customer in a customer table I want to find the most recent orders for each of those customers. Uh, Cross-apply works really well, but the beauty is that no, the nodes method on XML is a table-valued function, and I can use cross-apply exactly the same way. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the other thing I find, a couple of things with the nodes method, I've used it quite a bit where uh, we had things like um, security tokens stored in XML, and they've been passed into a stored procedure, and then part of the procedure processing was to apply the appropriate security. And so we've been able to sort of use the nodes method to join with the appropriate tables and things to, to get the right outcome. The one hesitation, which I know I've talked to you about in the past and we've had discussions on, is really the estimation of row counts and things in those sort of parameters. Yes. Yeah, so one of the problems that the SQL Server um, query optimizer has at the moment that's basically not only in the XML context, but applies to any other com uh, context as well, is that it really doesn't have a very good costing model for such uh, table-valued expressions uh, because they are basically kind of opaque to the query processor. Um, it doesn't really know what, how much um, rows it should estimate that it re re uh, results in. So if you apply the notes method, um, for example, um, we basically, the optimizer assumes that uh, it returns 10,000 rows. Yeah, now, I, I noticed you. Yeah, I noticed you get 10,000 every time. And in fact, yes. uh, SQL MVP Steve Cass uh, made a really interesting observation where he said that if the parameter, the whole parameter is only 600 bytes, it can't possibly have 10,000 rows in it. So, uh, Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. We, there, there's, the, the problem is you could do, like, individual hacks to improve yeah. it, but the problem is you need to have a more uh, concise uh, framework for doing that. And so, unfortunately, we haven't really been able to address that yet in 2008 mm -hmm. either. Um, the kind of recommendation that we are having at the moment is that uh, sometimes by rewriting your query slightly with uh, multiple notes, methods chaining, for example, you might actually get better cardinality estimates. Yeah. Um, we actually push path expressions in sometimes into these uh, method calls, um, into the actual PDF or table valid function that gets executed, and that actually will reduce the estimation slightly. Yeah. But um, obviously, if you start, if you say, I'm returning, uh, my estimate is I'm returning 10% of what I would return if I wouldn't push it in, and the estimate is 10,000, 10% of that, but actually there are only 10 rows returned, I'm still um, orders of magnitudes off. Yeah. Another way of dealing with it is to put the date to define an XML index on the data. Now, if the data is already in a table, that's obviously easily doable. Then the notes method does not get applied as a PDF, but you yeah. actually get uh, statistics that are available on the uh, XML index that gets you much better cost estimation normally. And alternatively, you can use the um, um, a temp table for a parameter or so um, and put it into a temp table and define an index on that, that might give you better performance as well. Yeah, that's great. The other thing then, the, the one that uh, is worth talking about as well, are the methods for modifying the XML um, and also that in conjunction with how this all fits in terms of standardization. Um, that's a good question. Um, so... We basically added um, a small subset of uh, update language uh, that allows you to do insertion of subtrees, uh, changing of values of a node, and deletion of subtrees inside an existing XML document without having to take the XML document, do the change, and write everything back uh, to, to, to the database. 
Yeah. Now that language has had not been uh, defined had not been defined yet by the W3C, so we kind of um, designed something that we felt was uh, making sense. And uh, the W3C is now working on an update language that uh, will actually encapsulate uh, this and the other functionality. But that specification is still not completed yet. So we haven't really done much in SQL Server 2008 uh, in that area except for one um, often requested improvement um, because uh, while the standard isn't done yet and we have to see what the standard actually looks like before we go and implement it. And you need to now, avoid constantly changing it because you don't want to break people's code that's already Exactly. There. I mean, we are breaking, we will be breaking people once already in the sense that since what we have implemented will probably not be 100% conformant with the standards, so I don't want to uh, break them twice. Yeah. So, look, that, that's a good lead-in then to talk about, so what's different in 2008? What, what do we see differently? Yeah. So, we have done... Um, a couple of work items uh, to improve our XML support, nothing obviously as big as we did in 2005, but a couple of interesting improvements. Uh, so um, on the schema side, for example, we have added support for lax validation and uh, fixed some uh, issues that people had with list of union and union of list types in XML schema. Yeah. Actually, with, lax the, with the lax validation, that was one of the... the Things I kept hearing with 2005 is that yes. there were a variety of schemas th that it just couldn't deal with. Yeah. So quite a few uh, industry standard schemas of different vertical industries uh, are using lax validation sections inside their schemas to give some form of partially validated extensibility points. Actually, maybe if you could just yeah, define what, what yes. the lax validation is, yeah. So what that means is is that um, you basically identify some place within your XML tree that where you say, well, I actually don't necessarily know what people will be putting in here. Now there are three ways of uh, basically validating such um, such an area. One is strict validation. Strict validation basically says that whatever people put into that open area has to be valid according to a known type in the schema. So while you don't know what type you will encounter, like or what element you will see, you yeah. know that if it's there, it will be uh, valid according to the schema. The, and we supported that in SQL Server 2005. Um, the second option is that you say it's skip validated, as the XML schema um, spec uh, calls it, which basically says, well, you can put anything in there. I don't look at it. I don't validate it. I don't care. And um, we support that as well. But some um, applications, they basically say, hmm, I want to have data in that open content that if I know the schema, I want to have it validated according to the schema, and I want to have it rejected if it's not valid according to the schema. But if I don't have a schema for it, then I accept it and I will deal with it as if it wasn't validated at all. Yeah. And so kind of this hybrid mechanism we didn't support in SQL Server 2005, and we have added support for that in SQL Server 2008. Was it mostly Office documents and things like that where people came across well, that? Well, Office, certain Office documents, but lots of other industry vertical schemas. Uh, we did some investigation, and we found a couple of hundred um, schemas that people in different areas are using that actually were using lax validation in one form or another. Mm. So, so we basically had to add support for that to have people not having to go and change their schema to skip, which was kind of the uh, suggestions that we made. Now, another thing that we did uh, is that um, you might remember that in SQL Server 2005, we had a limited support for time zone value, uh, for date time values. Yeah. Basically, you had to provide a time zone, and we did not give you a round trip ability of the indicated time zone. We would always normalize it to UTC zero. Yeah, um, and we the, didn't have time, time zone support in the relational engine either at that point. Exactly, and so we kind of were a little bit um, not very good with daytime in general in SQL Server. 
Mm. Now, that has uh, dramatically improved in SQL Server 2008. First, we have a couple of new types, uh, date, time, date, time two, and date, time offset that give you a much richer way of dealing with date, time values, higher precision, um, better ranges, uh, time zone support with and without time zone preservation, etc. And um, so we are utilizing some of these types now in the XML implementation to provide much better standard conformant time zone support in, in um, correspondingly typed uh, schemas. Yep. Um, so that means now that we actually allow values to have time zones or no time zones. We allow values to be um, the actually round trip the originally provided uh, time zone that users have provided. We don't normalize to Zulu uh, anymore for round tripping purposes. And um, as uh, and we also have the high resolution that you're getting using these uh, SQL and uh, new SQL types. Yep. Uh, one drawback is that if you're upgrading from SQL Server 2005 and have date time values, um, you will have to recreate the indices because the indices will get disabled. And in the hopefully very rare case that you have a negative year, you have to go and change your data because, unfortunately, uh, the SQL types don't support negative years. Oh, <laughs> indeed. And uh, so uh, we were um, having lots of discussions about that, and uh, in the end we felt that um, there were probably not too many people interested in uh, negative years, we hope. so. Actually, I suppose not negative, but one of the discussions that does come up periodically is the whole support for BCAD type things. Is, is that something that's on negative, the cards? So, so negative years basically means it's uh, BC. BC, yeah. Yeah, and um, at the moment, no. Uh, we haven't really seen many use cases outside of some very specific... Uh, very specific, yeah. Um, ...domains, and many of these specific domains, they they have very specific solutions for that anyway, which would not be easily addressable using those types. Yeah. So what so else if is... If you have a good use case, then obviously go to... Uh, I, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Encourage people to, yes, go up to the Connect site and uh, and make yeah. a case for it uh, the, if they do. And I suppose now is a very good time to be doing that. Uh, indeed, because we are starting to look at what we are going to do in the release after SQL Server yeah. 2008. So what else are we expecting in 2008 then? Okay, so on the XML front, um, another thing that we are adding is we are adding the let clause in the XQuery expression. Ah, so these are in the flower queries, the for let yes. order pair return, yes. Exactly, and we didn't support let at the time uh, because um, for a couple of reasons, and now we are supporting it as a mechanism for naming expressions, so you have a much if you have the same expression referred to in the XQuery expression multiple places uh, inside uh, query methods, not across query methods, yeah. you can use the let clause to uh, use that. Um, other improvement is we added two new uh, XQuery functions, the uppercase and lowercase function. Uh, interesting. And, pardon? That's interesting. Yeah. Yes, and we are we have added support in insert statements, in XQuery insert statements, that as a source of the insert, uh, you can now refer to a SQL column or SQL variable that refers to an XML data type. That was uh-huh. a restriction uh, that we relaxed in uh, one specific context so that people can now get an XML parameter, for example, and insert it into an existing XML document. That's great, yeah, because previously, that's right, the sort of thing we could do is we could insert... Uh, simple column types and things as part of those queries. But, yeah, uh, yeah so we could use to, either... You have to do variable. lots of dynamic SQL or do some for ex, um, deconstruction, reconstruction using for XML. Yeah, it would have been horrible. To be able to do that. Yeah. No, so so these, um, these are some of the uh, major um, aspects that we have done on the XML side. Um, as I mentioned, we unfortunately did not get to do much in terms of improving our cardinality estimates or our mm-hmm. index size. Yep. Um, I, um, however, I'm very adamant that we will be investing some resources in that in, uh, in, in one of the upcoming releases. Do you think, um, actually, there's an interesting thing. Um, would the XML indexes 
be something that would lend themselves well to uh, row com- uh, the compression in 2008? Um, yes, yeah, so that's one thing that we uh, looked at but didn't quite get to for this release mm-hmm. was um, whether we um, actually allow not row compression but page compression on it. Yeah. Because row compression actually gives us a little bit of a benefit, but the benefit uh, would be more on the row compression because uh, on the page compression because mm-hmm. of the way that we cluster data, uh, we actually could get quite a bit of uh, prefix compression out of it. But unfortunately, uh, that functionality is not um, currently slated for um, SQL Server 2008. Yeah. If that's something that uh, would make lots of people happy, then I would recommend. Um, writing letters of protest to LGBT <laughs> or something like that. But uh, not, that, not that I've said that, uh, of course. Uh, but, <laughs> indeed, uh, indeed not. Um, so, so basically the problem there is, is that compression was done um, and finished um, late without being able to take um, some of the um, non-relational functionality into account. Unfortunately. Yeah. Well, listen, that's pretty much bringing us up to about time and where will we see you this year? I mean, uh, I presume TechEd, uh, but uh, other conferences? Well, uh, it all, all depends on my travel budget. Um, yeah. So we are currently um, having some launch events, so I will be, um, as it looks like, I will probably be at some launch events in Europe in early March uh, in the Netherlands and Belgium. Um, I um, plan to be at TechEd uh, in uh, the U.S. this year, and if I'm lucky and um, I can convince my management to let me travel, I might also be at another TechEd um, either in Europe or somewhere else um, towards the end of the year. Towards the end of the year, yeah. If you're in Europe uh, in sort of March, April, is there any chance you'll be at the PASS conference in Germany? Um, no, that is not planned yep. at the moment. Okay. But um, who knows? And if I'm <laughs> not there, I'm sure somebody else will be there. Yeah, that's great. Well, listen, thank you very much for your time today, Michael. I, I hope that, uh, and I think it will have, uh, given a lot of folk a, a really, really good overview of, of where that fits in the product and what to expect. You're welcome.